Welcome to the 18th episode of the official SBGAN podcast, hosted by Dr. Alex Nicely. <laughs> good morning, everybody, or good evening, or whatever time it is where you're listening. Today, we are in Brussels, or Bruxelles, or Brussel, <laughs> a trilingual city if ever there was one. And we're about to speak with Professor Patrick Bontemps, who is a professor of pediatric gastroenterology at the, now wait for this, I've been practicing my French all week, at the Université Libre de Bruxelles, and he's also affiliated with the Hôpital Universitaire des Enfants Reine Fabiola. Now, for those of you for whom my French is an insurpassable barrier, that's the Free University of Brussels, and he's now in his office at the University Hospital for Children, Queen Fabiola. He is in his office, and that explains some of what we're going to hear in the background, which is the noise of children who are having, for one reason or another, to spend their time there. So with that, Patrick, welcome. Thank you so much, Alex. And uh, your French is fantastic, you know. Especially the way you say Reine Fabiola. Can, can you say it again once? Um, let's see if I can do this. Non, tu rigoles. Reine Fabiola. Yeah, so wonderful. The air you are pronouncing were very, very, very cute. As we already said before. Okay, so before you before you get me blushing again, I want to point out that you're one of the most difficult people to interview that I can imagine. I've been through your CV. I've noted that there's nothing personal, nothing at all personal in your CV. It's all business. And even when I, well, I tried a Facebook search, I tried an internet search, and you're one of those rare people who has scrubbed any mention of himself from social media. So congratulations, although I'm a bit baffled as to how to begin. You, you were born in 1965. Let's start there. Where were you born? I am born in Brussels. <laughs> so in Brussels, and it looks as if you've really haven't fallen far from the tree, which is to say that your um, educational career, what of it I can trace, and your professional development has all been inside the Brussels Ring Road. Uh, exactly, yes. I have been uh, going to a primary school uh, 50 meters from, uh, from the house. Uh, secondary school was maybe 500 meters from uh, from home. Uh, Free University of Brussels is, of course, in Brussels and not very far from uh, from home, just a little 10 kilometers, something like this, probably less. And then I indeed uh, start my uh, pediatric residency in this hospital where I I'm working here since uh, 87, finally, because the last three years I spent a lot of time in this hospital. I made a uh, night shift as a nurse uh, during my uh, medical education also. So I'm really, indeed, as you said, I didn't fall far from the tree. And I can add that I am living in the house where I am born. Wow. <laughs> Most of us have to... Most of us have to go away 
in order to come back. Otherwise, the people who have known us since we were children just say, Huh, Patrick, how did you get to be so smart? I remember you when. But no, you've been one of those people whom everybody saw as worth keeping around, worth fostering, a talent who had to be held on to, which is just great. But I have a bone to pick with you in that. And that is that you became a hollow viscous gastroenterologist, an endoscopist. Now, why did you decline to go into the liver? We could have used a man like you. Well, you know, my mentor was uh, Sami Kadranel. Aha. So two uh, people finally start pediatric endoscopy. One was in Brussels, Sami Kadranel, and he was my mentor, and I was working with him uh, until he died in uh, 2020. I've been very, very close to him, a very strong relationship. And, well, of course, then my major, finally, uh, interest have been endoscopy for four years. The other one was uh, Jean-Francois Mougenot, who is uh, living in Paris. Mm -hmm. And it's also a friend. Uh, In fact, we have a patient in common that is a passion in common. That is uh, mountain climbing. Uh, And uh, this is how we met. In fact, one day I was uh, giving a lecture in Nancy, in France. And then uh, I just saw him reading a book about climbing in Himalaya. And then I started talking with uh, Jean-Francois at that time. And so not just alpinist, but Himalayaist. I don't know if that word exists in French, but if it doesn't, I've just made it up. So, but you elected to climb the mountain, if I may say so, of uh, pediatric endoscopy. And of course, that brought you into contact with the need best to diagnose and best to treat Helicobacter pylori and the disorders that it causes. You've supplied me with a review article about H. pylori, and frankly, there is too much to know. There are, you've cited so many studies, and those studies, uh, they don't leave me with many conclusions as to how best to approach the problems of diagnosis in the symptomatic, diagnosis in the asymptomatic, as with screening programs, and then finally, treatment of those demonstrated to be infected and of those in their social circle. Espagan has recently issued an update on what to do and how to do it. And I think we would be doing those who are listening to this podcast a favor if we could, in some respects, move toward summarizing those recommendations in respect of the points that I've mentioned. That would be, first, diagnosis in the symptomatic. There are so many ways to approach this. You have urine assays, serum assays, breath assays, and then working through the endoscope, tissue sampling with histopathologic or molecular diagnostic approaches. Which do you use, and how do you choose among them? 
So first thing we, as you mentioned, we are indeed now working on uh, reviewing the guidelines that were published already. The previous one were published in uh, 2017, but based on uh, a review of the literature that ended at the beginning of uh, 2015. So I will speak about my point of view and not yet about the point of view of the group doing these uh, guidelines. Uh, and mostly uh, Helicobacter pylori infection is not causing symptoms in children. Uh, so when a child comes and complains uh, and that these complaints may suggest uh, upper GI involvement, esophagus, stomach, duodenum or anything, uh, the first thing to do is to perform an endoscopy. Not, uh, well, we usually recommend not to do it at the first time you saw the child. What I was doing when I had more time is to ask the child to come back. Unless he have uh, alarm symptoms, then we just ask to come back a few days, one week later just to see if the pain didn't change and is really localized. And then if indeed the symptoms are quite uh, stable, then uh, su we suggest uh, endoscopy. During endoscopy, uh, we can diagnose eosinophilic esophagitis, erosive esophagitis, eventually um, echalasia, uh, motor disorders, uh, eventually also lesions in the stomach and especially look for ulcers stomach and duodenum and uh, look for celiac disease eventually if it's a possibility and in some cases ulcers will be linked to helicobacter pylori we published uh, a paper not so long ago about the evolution of the proportion of ulcers in children that are linked with uh, Helicobacter pylori infection and it's roughly about 40% and stable during the last 25 years. So we are not, and this is what is said in the guidelines, we are not looking for H. pylori infection but we are looking for a lesion that may explain the symptom of the child. And eventually it will be ulcers, and eventually it will be ulcers linked to Helicobacter pylori. Or it can be nodular gastritis with an infection by Helicobacter pylori. Uh, and then we will eventually uh, suggest a treatment for that disease. Is there room in your pre-screening approach, the two-visit approach, for using one of those fancy techniques referred to in your uh, re recent review, such as, I'm thinking now of a, a Mexican team that diagnosed H. pylori using PCR on an oral swab, <clears throat> or or stool antigens. Uh, and my question is, um, 
if you can pre-screen for H. pylori, um, why not? Well, in fact, if your pre-screen is positive, what you will still have to do is an endoscopy to look for ulcers, to look if there is no an, not another lesion that explains the, the symptoms, mm-hmm. and to have access to antimicrobial susceptibility testing. So you need to isolate the bug also to, in order to have it. And if the test is negative, the symptoms are still there. Mm-hmm. So you will again perform an endoscopy. As I said earlier, 60% of uh, ulcer disease, at least in Brussels, are not linked anymore to Helicobacter pylori. So the fact that the non-invasive test is positive or negative, you will still end up with uh, doing endoscopy. So why not going directly and save a little bit of uh, public money? With regard to antibiotic susceptibility, I'm thinking by analogy now, which is always treacherous, to alpha-1 antitrypsin storage disorder. One no longer takes a sample of serum and subjects it to electrophoresis. Instead, one looks using PCR and peripheral blood DNA for the particular mutations that underlie in by far most persons seen, the M, S, and Z phenotypes. Is there enough consensus in terms of antibiotic sensitivity or resistance among bacterial sequences to permit using PCR to assess susceptibility or resistance to particular antibiotics? Uh, it can be used for two antibiotics, mainly for macrolides, because then there's uh, not a lot of mutations described, and so it's quite easy on any material to know if the bacteria is uh, resistant or susceptible to macrolides. And we know some mutations for quinolone, but we are not using quinolone in children. But this is something that is used in adults and uh, so for about around 10 mutations we can identify on a PCR. So this is uh, something that can be uh, suggested indeed using a PCR instead of culture. And now you know uh, with this COVID thing uh, everyone is able to do a PCR everywhere in the world. That's for sure. How long does it take you at your institution to obtain cultural insensitivity results for H. pylori? About 10 days. Well, what do you do? Let's say that you've observed nodular gastritis or an ulcer. You're still not in a position until a couple of tests come back to ascribe those findings to an H. pylori infection, if I've understood you correctly. It could be something else that's giving you either of those appearances. If we pathologists are doing our job, then you might have your answer as to H. pylori detected, yes or no, within, say, two days. 
maybe even within one. I'm, I'm holding the flag high here. But if, <clears throat> if that set of tests comes back negative, then what do you do until culture and sensitivity results are in hand? Of course, I'm, I, haven't, I haven't mentioned Urie's production, which, as I understand, can be done there in the endoscopy suite. A smear, a change in color, and you have a preliminary answer. What do you, pres what do, you do until the doctor comes? What do, you what do you prescribe and how do you treat until the culture and sensitivities results are in your hands? If there is an ulcer, we will start a proton pump inhibitor mm -hmm. directly and then suggest uh, an eradication treatment if we can identify uh, the infection by Helicobacter pylori. If it's nodular gastritis, then usually we don't treat until we have uh, all the results. And we take time to see parents and children in consultation box to explain what we found, what it means, what are the risks eventually for the future, what will be the outcome in terms of symptoms uh, with, if we prescribe eradication treatment and what are the risks also of uh, the treatment. And uh, we really think it's important to have the time to do that and not to do it on the day of the endoscopy in order to really explain well and to obtain a good compliance of the family with the treatment. This is uh, another article that I uh, sent to you uh, to prepare this, uh, this interview. And we know that uh, compliance to treatment must be above 90%. That means that the correspondence between what has been prescribed and what the child is really taking at home must be higher than 90%. I usually make a joke with uh, the family and say, oh, at school with 50%, you're okay. But with me, for that treatment, <laughs> you must have more than 90%. That means you cannot make any mistake. <laughs> I would imagine that a family whose child is in distress, so apparent that one goes to visit the doctor instead of saying, Oh, yeah, you'll be better tomorrow. <laughs> that there's quite a bit of motivation to carry on and to treat. Are the antibiotics or their effects so unpleasant that people discontinue them as intolerable? The side effects are described in about one third of uh, the patients. Uh, usually it's mild, diarrhea, uh, abdominal pain, cramp. Uh, well, with some medication like bismuth, it's uh, dark stools also that can be seen. Modification of the taste also can be uh, described. And uh, it's indeed something we take time to explain to the family. You may experience this, this and this. And it will be important not to stop the treatment at that moment. 
And if really it becomes too difficult, just call us or come to see us and we will evaluate things with them. You recommended uh, a quadruple therapy for agents. Am I, have I got that right? Uh, no, so it, that's the third article I uh, sent to you about a quadruple, a quadruple therapy with bismuth. Uh, mm -hmm. But most of the time we are still prescribing a triple therapy tailored to antimicrobial susceptibility. Mm -hmm. So it's always high-dose PPI. Okay. Why high-dose? It's because uh, antibiotics are not efficient in an acidic uh, environment. Mm -hmm. So it's really important to have a very good suppression of acid secretion. We give amoxicillin unless there is an allergy to penicillin, of course. Uh, we give it in three times a day. And we are using high dose, like uh, it's used now frequently for respiratory disorder, meaning we give 75 to 80 milligram per kilo per day. And then the first, the third agent will be uh, macrolide, clarithromycin, or metronidazole, depending on the antimicrobial susceptibility. If we have resistance to both, then we favor metronidazole instead of clarithromycin. I guess my, my question must be now, with this kind of parent consulting, with parents who ought to be strongly motivated, the persons from whom your team will have learned the most are the non-compliant. What are the reasons for not following through on the part of a family? Well, the factor that we identify in the article is uh, side effects. So there is a clear link between side effects of treatments and uh, lower compliance. But lower compliance means that below 90%, the eradication rates uh, reach only 50% or less. And above 90%, then you have 90, more than, uh, you can reach 90% of eradication rates in, the, in your series. So what we learn also from this, indeed, from patients, is that it's useless to try to prescribe these kind of drugs to a child who is vomiting. Right. Or having difficulty to swallow pills. Right. Then sometimes better to uh, wait and give uh, some time so that the family may understand better and the child would be in a better situation to... Uh, accept the treatment and follow it uh, till the end. Otherwise, we uh, favor the appearance of resistance and eradication later may become very, very, very difficult. I want to ask now about what you prescribe, if anything, for the asymptomatic parents or siblings of a child who has demonstrated H. pylori infection. We are not doing 
in fact we are only dealing with symptomatic uh, people but there are some series showing that uh, eradication rates and especially probably reinfection could be lower if you treat all the family again it's a question also of uh, success you can achieve with your treatment if you have 90% of success then it can be eventually interesting to cure the family but if you are using a treatment or your personal uh, success in on is only 60 or 70 percent in uh, intention to treat then i think it's prescribing a lot of antibiotics and maybe will not be so uh, efficient but there are data now showing that indeed uh, treating the family would be interesting especially uh, probably in some countries where the prevalence is very high or in uh, some families mostly migrant families in uh, in belgium where the infection rate is quite higher there we go into the area of different populations of incidence rates and of public health approaches that might be taken to H. pylori infection. For example, a newly arrived family from, let's say, Syria. They've come through the camps in Turkey. They've found a home now in Brussels, in Belgium. And the children are toddler age, coming into kindergarten, coming into school. Those kids, the way that kids share bodily fluids, those kids are little foci for introduction, potential introduction of a number of pathogens into the generally healthy indigenous population of much of Brussels. So should we screen everybody who lives in, all, or rather, should we screen everybody who lives in Isel or I'm hoping that I pronounced that correctly. Uh, that neighbor, that neighborhood in Brussels, right next to the train station, <laughs> which, as I remember, is a pretty run-down neighborhood. Should we, or should we treat everybody who, who comes in, or screen everybody who comes in from a non-European Union area? What approaches are you taking, or are governmental agencies taking, in regard of? public health. There is no policy of uh, systematic screening um, and it's difficult to make probably uh, calculations to see uh, whether it will be efficient to prevent mm -hmm. gastric mm -hmm. cancer and ulcers. Uh, so there is no policy for the moment. I, I think uh, treatment still difficult. Uh, treatments is causing symptoms mm -hmm. uh, and efficiency is not as high as we would like it, it could be so prevention of transmission prevention of acquisition is probably something we should focus more for the moment there is something that happened 50 or 70 years ago 
in uh, most of our countries. Uh, that helps to decrease the transmission of Helicobacter from the parents to the child. It also happens in Japan. That the transmission, the young children mostly do not colonize by a Helicobacter. Uh, it's not true in other countries, although declining, but not everywhere. For example, in, uh, in Vietnam, because I'm working there, the prevalence is still as high as uh, 85 or more than 85% in school-aged children. And mm. uh, So we are still looking to better understand what was positive in the change of uh, living conditions uh -huh. in the so-called developed countries to prevent right. the transmission. And I would favor such approach over screening and treating. Uh, yeah, there is immunization. Some uh, trials are made with uh, vaccine, although we are waiting vaccine for more than 20 years, so I don't know if it will be efficient and arriving soon or not. And also in the living condition, we, we should have a look uh, on this for sure. We have one more point that I'd like to touch on, <clears throat> and that is if evaluation is contingent on symptoms, then how do you assess success of treatment? The symptoms disappear very well, but has the bug disappeared? <laughs> and the question now is, do you rely on a follow-up endoscopy, or are you happy with something as non-invasive as stool antigen testing? The best uh, tests to control eradication are non-invasive tests because still we cannot biopsy all the stomach so for the histopathologist like you cannot be sure there will not be helicobacter somewhere mm -hmm. uh, so breast testing and stool antigens with monoclonal uh, antibodies are the best approach for controlling eradication thank you we are coming in toward the end of the time allotted to us for this interview and I thank you for focusing for me the well for, for, for compressing condensing and explaining in a manner that I could understand that fire hose stream of work and of data that you present in that review article I find it very difficult to drink from a fire hose, but uh, this was a manageable amount of information and very manageably presented, and I thank you. We now come to the question of what song a Bruxellois will choose to present to us who didn't have the luck to be born there, something to summarize and to introduce in some ways what it's like to grow up uh, within shouting distance of the Manacampis and the Grand Place. What's your song? I was searching and thinking a lot. 
I was first trying to think about a Belgian singer. And, ah, uh, okay. Who else but Brel? Huh? <laughs> who else than Brel? Exactly. Uh -huh. Absolutely. And there is a beautiful song that uh, is called Quand on n'a que l'amour, when we only have love. And this is really meaningful now because we are in Europe facing a war. And that would be very, very, uh, yeah, meaningful for sure. But I finally decided to uh, ask for another song that is more related to the relationship uh, with between a father and uh, his child. And this is a French singer. It's Renaud. Mm -hmm. And the song is uh, Mistral Gagnant. It describes a relationship of a father, a bit childish, like me, in fact, <laughs> that loves to uh, play with uh, these children. And uh, we don't know if it's a daughter or a son, but it doesn't matter. And so they are laughing together, eating uh, sweet things and enjoying life together. So this is more meaningful for me and maybe also for all the uh, auditors. I don't know if they are like me, but what I really like in a consultation is playing with, uh, with the child there. We start laughing and uh, saying nonsense things, and uh, it's always a very good moment. These are the best moments in, uh, in our work, I think. So, Renaud, Mistral Gagnant. M'asseoir sur un banc, cinq minutes avec toi Et regarder les gens tant qu'il y en a Te parler du bon temps qui est mort ou qui reviendra En serrant dans ma main tes petits doigts Puis donner à bouffer à des pigeons idiots Leur filer des coups de pied pour de faux Et entendre ton rire qui lézarde les murs Qui sait surtout guérir mes blessures Te raconter un peu comment j'étais minot Et bon mec fabuleux chez le marchand, car en sac et minto, caramel à un franc, et les Mistral gagnants. Pas marcher sous la pluie, cinq minutes avec toi, et regarder la vie tant qu'il y en a. Te raconter la terre en te bouffant des yeux, te parler de ta mère un petit peu, et sauter dans les flaques pour la faire râler, bousiller nos godasses et se marrer. If you would like to listen to the song in full length, please check out our Espigan playlist. Thank you very much. Folks, we've had another good, I've had another good session with an interesting person and I hope that it's been of interest to you. If you think that we can make these interviews better, then please send your comments to office at espigan.org. Dr. Bontan, mille merci. Thank you so much. Avec plaisir, Alex.